Debussy's Prelude à l'après-midi d'un faune is often described as impressionist. And it's music that can easily set the listener wandering through a kind of mental picture gallery full of hazy, Monet-like pastoral paintings. But what is impressionism? Well, the art dictionaries generally tell us that the impressionist movement began in the 1860s and that it was much identified with France. Fine, but what was it? Well, as so often with important artistic or philosophical isms, it's easier to say what it wasn't. The painters who called themselves, or allowed themselves to be called, Impressionists made a point of being against all forms of classicism or neoclassicism, that is, any kind of officially canonised ideals, standards or rules of beauty. In other words, anything that savoured of the Academy. At the same time, the Impressionists tended to proclaim themselves anti-romantic, against all stress on subjectivity and expression of personal emotion. Instead, what was offered was a kind of realism, but not photographic realism. Most Impressionists would probably have agreed with the German philosopher Immanuel Kant, who wrote that we can never know a thing as it really is. We can only know how our brains interpret what our senses tell us about it, our sense impressions. So instead of trying to objectify a thing, painters like Monet, Degas and Renoir set out to record single moments of perception, the way the light catches the ripples on a pond or cuts through the leaves on a tree at just one moment. But what about music? Well, something very similar does seem to have been beginning to happen in music at around the same time as the French Impressionist painters were discovering their new ideals and techniques. But it was happening under rather different headings, different historical labels. First, let's look at a composer who's normally labelled nationalist. It's the Russian Modest Mussorgsky. Mussorgsky started work on his opera Chovanshchina in the early 1870s. The prelude is one of the most astonishingly new things in music at that time. It's also known as Dawn on the Moscow River. Most operatic preludes or overtures in the late 19th century are broadly symphonic, in the classical romantic sense of there being themes and developments, ideas with a latent purpose, which the music then works out to a logical, inevitable conclusion. But that's not Mussorgsky's way of doing things at all. He starts with something very unlike a theme. It's more important as a means of establishing the atmosphere. This is dawn the first ripples of refracted light through the mists on the Moscow River. As yet, there's no specific sense of place, just the impression. The ripples give way to a high string tremolo, a sound often used in music to suggest a sense of space and clear light. Now Mussorgsky brings in a theme with unmistakable suggestions of Russian folk music. It clearly stands for Russia. Now we know where we are.
We've a Russian melody, a sense of space, of rippling water and mist. Then comes the unmistakable sound of a cockcrow on clarinet. We hear responses on horn and other woodwind instruments. Life begins to stir. So what we have is not classical theme and development, but a series of sharp impressions of a scene. Later, Mussorgsky builds a climax on a new version of the Russian folk melody. In the background is a superb piece of sound painting. We hear the bells of St Basil's, imitated by horns, harp, timpani, gong and pizzicato double basses. As I said, those bell effects are a wonderful piece of sound painting, but there's something else about those chords. The two chords Mussorgsky uses to imitate the bells set up a repeating pattern, swaying backwards and forwards. You feel they could go on like that indefinitely, almost like the modern minimalist patterned music of Steve Reich or Philip Glass. It's a very different way of thinking about harmony from the classical or romantic models. All the intimidating technical talk about harmony, labels for chords you find in academic textbooks like Dominant Sevenths or Neapolitan Sixth, it's all really centred on one question. Where is this harmony coming from and where is it going to? But Mussorgsky's bell chords aren't going anywhere or coming from anywhere. They just are. Here we have it in music, as in Impressionist painting, the encapsulation of a moment of perception. We'll hear the whole of Mussorgsky's Prelude to Hrvanschina now, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Kenneth Woods. And as we do so, listen to the way Mussorgsky paints that picture of dawn on the Moscow River. This is not a piece that travels or develops in the Beethovenian sense. It's just a series of impressions of the same scene, that changes as the light, atmosphere, the texture of our perceptions change from moment to moment.
prelude to Mazorsky's Chovanschina, played by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Kenneth Woods. As I've argued, that's one of the earliest pieces of music that could be described, amongst other things, as Impressionist. But it's not the earliest example. Someone else was experimenting along similar lines, even earlier than Mussorgsky. It's a composer who was very different in some ways, but who again is one of music's great originals. I'm talking about Richard Wagner. His opera Tristan and Isolde is one of the great revolutionary artworks. Music was just never the same again. Wagner is often described as the arch-romantic. He's also claimed as a forerunner of 20th century expressionism and the atonal revolution, a direct link to the still notorious Arnold Schoenberg. That, if you like, is the modern German perspective. But some French composers, and particularly Debussy, responded to other elements in Wagner's music, elements that were just as revolutionary, but which pointed in different directions. One element that didn't seem to interest Schoenberg at all was related to this issue of time and our sense impressions. Sometimes you'll find patterns in Wagner that repeat like those bell chords in Mussorgsky's Prelude. There's no sense of progression, of movement from A to B. The music has become almost timeless. You can hear a sound just like that at the beginning of the third act of Tristan and Isolde. It's a sound Wagner uses to portray the eternal rise and fall of the sea under a leaden sky. rise and fall of the sea and those unchanging grey skies painted, one has to say painted, by slowly rising violins. That's timeless. It's not human in the romantic sense. Instead, there's an impression of a thing and its constantly recurring moment, almost like the same moment cinematically replayed over and over again. And there's an example of almost pure Impressionism in Wagner's opera Siegfried, written in the late 1850s and revised in the late 60s. In other words, when the concept of Impressionism was still only a twinkle in the painterly eye. It's the section called Forest Murmurs, Waldweben. The young Siegfried has just killed the dragon Fafner. Contact with the dragon's blood cleanses his perception and makes him able to understand the songs of the birds. He enters the woodland and hears the sounds of nature with new ears. In other words, he's become an Impressionist. We begin with harmonies that do seem to be moving. Well, after all, Siegfried is walking. 
But it's not the development of themes that matters, rather the changes in what you might call oral perspective. Wagner begins with a sound suggesting the gentle movement of foliage, a soft undulation in cellos. Then, stage by stage, the foliage gradually becomes denser. So Siegfried enters the forest, gradually taking things in, his perceptions shifting. We have a striking change of perspective at the end of that passage, a new type of rustling or undulation, faster but at the same time smoother. Later the density and complexity of the string's texture increases fabulously, the strings divided into more and more parts. It's as though the newly sense-awakened Siegfried is becoming more and more aware of the complexity of his environment, of the layers of woodland texture. If we look at that dense, rich string texture, it's not just different levels of movement. There are different colours too. For example, some of the strings are muted, some not. It's no accident that at this point the score actually begins to look like Debussy. And through this visionary, complex texture, teeming with different kinds of colour and movement, Siegfried becomes aware of new sounds laden with new meaning, the bird song. Listen to the way Wagner eventually brings in the bright metallic sound of the glockenspiel to heighten the sound of the woodwind's bird song. We're hearing the bird calls with the heightened intensity of Siegfried's new magical perception.
Apart from a moment of brief romantic excitement as Siegfried sounds his horn, there's no real movement in the classical sense in that passage. The harmony remains essentially static, rooted to E major, like the trees rooted to the earth. The woodwind bird song isn't thematic in the classical romantic senses. It doesn't get developed. It doesn't even suggest ways in which it might be developed. What we hear is a sequence of different impressions of a single idea from moment to moment. Siegfried steps outside time, the experience of change, and lives only in the vividly experienced moment, in the magic of the impression. Now we're getting very close indeed to the ethos of Debussian Impressionism, but we'll approach him via a French composer less often described as Impressionist, Debussy's contemporary Maurice Ravel. There's one work by Ravel that does lend itself to the Impressionist label, Rhapsody Espagnole. Spain fascinated French composers as much as the contemporary Impressionist painters. Here was a country virtually on the doorstep that was exotic with its lingering Arab influences and typified by brighter, more garish Mediterranean colours. For the French, and others, it had an uncultivated feel with suggestions of dark, erotic delights, especially apparent in its strongly flavoured dance music. The first movement of Rhapsody Espagnole is called Prelude à la Nuit, Prelude to the Night. Ravel bases this movement around a repeating mesmeric pattern, a simple figure of four descending notes. At first, Ravel gives it a hushed, velvety character, muted violins and violas, like the sensuous hush of a Spanish night. I think the key word is sultry. The colour changes slightly. An oboe is added, along with some strange shifting harmonies oscillating to and fro, a bit like Mussorgsky's bells. The four-note pattern shifts downwards, and the colour changes again and again, first the cor anglais, then a low flute. But the basic four-note descending pattern remains the same. The musical object is unchanging, and yet the light, or shadow, Ravel plays across it keeps changing. And all the time there are mysterious hints of other sense impressions. A flicker of song on clarinets, a shiver of cold on strings, or is it repressed excitement?
quiet as it is, this repetition creates a high electric charge. Now there's an outburst of something ravishing. We feel intense sexual allure, and yet the repeating pattern goes on and on. While the senses were distracted by that sudden rush of excitement, our repeating pattern has changed a little. It's now three falling notes instead of four, after which it slows down. Then comes a moment of visionary stillness. An arabesque figure is rolled over and over by clarinets, like a tiny telling phrase of a weird folk vocalise played over and over again. It's relished rolled on the tongue, as though one could really capture a moment like this and replay it timelessly. four-note descending pattern returns, as though nothing had happened. We're back to our sense of place again, though colour has become even more fabulous. You could describe this movement as the pursuit of the most minute impression, the most delicate, yet also the most intense. But put together the words impressionism and music, and one name presses forward. I've held him back for long enough, Claude Debussy. Like Ravel, Debussy was powerfully drawn to what he saw as the sensuous intensity and eroticism of Spain. There's another fabulous Spanish night picture in the second movement of Debussy's orchestral suite Iberia. It's called Les Parfums de la Nuit, The Perfumes of the Night. What a title. You're halfway to the sound world already. There's an incredible example of dwelling on the experience of a moment and in the process heightening it at the end of this movement. It's the moment of transition by which Les Parfums de la Nuit gives way to Le Matin d'un jour de fête, morning on the day of the festival. It was Beethoven who really patented the idea of dynamic transition, in which one kind of music doesn't just join to another, but rather becomes another. The dramatic crescendo that links the scherzo to the finale in his Fifth Symphony is the classic example. Wagner took this further, creating a kind of transition in which one kind of music shades into another, which already begins to sound very impressionistic. But in Iberia, Debussy creates something new, in which a moment of transition seems to happen over and over again, with different colours and different kinds of intensity. 
First, though, let's give you an impression of Debussy's exquisite mood painting in Les Parfums de la Nuit. The movement is moving towards its close. tender memory of what sounds like a serenade, a nocturnal love song, is interrupted. The air stirs, and a fresh breeze conveys the distant sound of bells. It's a breath from another world, the world of the coming new day. But the half-remembered sound of the love song returns, only to be interrupted by a new kind of activity. The world of day is intruding still further into the dreams of night. Still, Debussy tries to hold on to his dream of night and love. But now another new sound intrudes, the xylophone, brighter, brasher. The memory is receding and is being replaced by new impressions of day. It's a magical, poignant effect, like moving backward and forward in time as Debussy strives to hang on to treasured impressions of sensual Mediterranean night in the wake of a rising tide of new impressions from the new day. Let's hear that whole passage now, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Kenneth Woods.
But as well as capturing moments, impressions, timelessly, in defiance of classical schemes or romantic long lines, the musical impressionists achieved something else. Ravel in Rhapsody Espagnole and Debussy over and over again. Think of Monet's paintings of water lilies or haystacks, or those studies of the façade of Rouen Cathedral. What we see is the same object viewed in different kinds of light, so much so that we find ourselves asking, is this still the same object? Objectively, scientifically speaking, perhaps it is. Subjectively, no, our impression has changed, and our impression is all we really have. Think of Ravel's four-note figure in Rhapsody Espagnole. It's the same object, and yet as its colours and harmonies change, it isn't. And one of the most potent musical examples, perhaps the nearest equivalent in music to the paintings of Monet, is Debussy's Prelude à l'après-midi d'un faune. Here Debussy gives us an object in as near as possible to a visual, painterly manner. You could say that the piece is a series of impressions of the poem by Stéphane Mallarmé, from which Debussy took his title and his central idea. It begins with a faun, a mythical being, half-goat, half-man, playing a languid incantatory phrase on his reed pipe. Debussy gives us the piped incantation on its nearest modern equivalent, the flute. The response to that incantation is a wash of magical sound. It's like a door opening on a strange new world, a world of dreams. It happens twice. Again, Debussy replays the moment as a way of defying the sense of the passing of time. Impressions repeat. Echo. Now the flute calls again, but this time it's no longer solo, glowing, as it were, with its own faint light. It's surrounded by colour, shimmering strings and harmony. The harmony may not be quite what we expect, and it leads to a new opening out.
We hear the flute again, this time with a slightly different continuation, as though Debussy had shifted the angle from which we view it a little and bathed it in a new light, rippling harp and a shift of harmony. Now we have a very different impression of the same object, and we can hear how the colour has changed as the flute phrase has blossomed. One flute became two flutes. Like Monet, Debussy has taken that one object and shown us a series of subtly different impressions of it, a series of moments of perception, each with its own power of suggestion. This continues to happen throughout the piece. Sometimes, though, the process is more subtle, as at the climax of the prelude. The phrases of the fawn's flute incantation, the musical object, if you like, spell out a very striking interval. It's called the tritone, three whole tones. It's totally ambiguous, for which reason medieval theorists used to call it the Diabolus in Musica, the devil in music, and tried to ban it. At the climax of the prelude, the double basses spell out exactly the same interval. Above that, Debussy builds a texture as fabulously rich and multi-layered as anything in Wagner's Forest Murmurs. It feels like a new vision but the object is still the same, even though it's hidden deep down in the base. In painterly terms, the impressions of light and shade are so intense that we're hardly even aware that the object is the same, and yet it is.
The final section of the prelude brings calm as the fawn's fantasies yield to the influence of the noonday heat. But still, Debussy goes on reviewing the same flute object. We hear it again and again, with new colours, new harmonies, new meanings. That's the key to the structure, the development of the prelude, if those words aren't too dry and stultifying for something so original and alive. It's no exaggeration to say that the prelude à l'après-midi d'un fun opened the gateway to many new things in music, just as its very opening seems to open the door on magical new worlds. But the prelude à l'après-midi d'un fun is also the apotheosis of a process that had begun decades earlier, as composers moved closer and closer to something very like what the Impressionist painters were trying to capture. So try listening with painterly ears as we play this extraordinary work in which everything from the minutest touch of colour to the very structure of the piece is conditioned by that impressionist desire to capture the moment. Debussy's Prelude à l'après-midi d'un fun is performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Kenneth Woods. <laughs> 